Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, as always. Uh, I'm sure some of you are wondering where I've been the last couple of days. Well, as we all know, there's a thing called life, and sometimes um, other things come up um, either expected or in some instances unexpected. But the bottom line is is that um, I haven't forgotten about you all, and I'm sure that you all haven't forgotten about me, but I'm sure at the same time many of you were wondering, when is the next podcast going to come on the air about Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the making of a great nation? Well, I have an answer, and that's right now, at this moment. So, we're going to be uh, discussing in this podcast uh, session um, the final part to part four of the stupendous path, or let alone the stupendous path, but uh, that's um, we're going to be finishing up uh, part four. And then after part four, we've got one last part left of this uh, book to discuss, being part five. And then we will have uh, completed the uh, journey. But this uh, particular uh, episode is going to talk about some um, miraculous uh, breakthroughs, but breakthroughs in the sense where people from all walks of life, or let alone society, are going to come together, and and in some instances, uh, politicians who were at um, what do you call it, different ends of the spectrum, at one time who were either for or against the canal being built, all put their uh, differences aside to um, come together as one to celebrate this um, engineering landmark that still to this day even though it is not used for commercial uh, purposes like it was in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, it still is heralded as an engineering marvel, not only for its time, but still even in um, today's time, today's modern world, rather. So, our uh, leadoff bonus question will uh, be the following. Now, uh, we're going to um, venture now into the year 1824. Where I left off uh, from the previous podcast was talking about the um, final piece of uh, canal construction that linked uh, Rochester to Lake Erie, being uh, Buffalo, with that uh, Niagara Escarpment uh, piece that really was the um, most defining uh, part to the Erie Canal, most notably with the Flight of Five uh, locks uh, that would be um, really is a navigation for. Um, like an elevator or uh, going up an escalator from the highest point to the lowest point and then vice versa. So here we are in 1824. Um, who all, how many of you all know who would be the president of the United States in 1824? He's near the end of his presidency. Really, it's his last year, but it's James Monroe. And his presidency truly has lived up to the era of good feelings. Now, before I get to the bonus question, there's something else unique about 1824 that really does define James Monroe's legacy as president. And before I get to that part, I should point out, too, that it's pretty amazing to think that James Monroe has been president from 1817 to 1825, and during that whole time, the canal was... Um, constructed and it was um, it was completely built the last touches were done right after he left office but he lived 
his whole presidency though was surrounded or by canal mania and with an actual dream that came true to to connect the Atlantic Ocean to the inland uh, waterways of New York State and into uh, the Great Lakes, most notably Lake Erie, venturing into Ohio, uh, Michigan, and what we know is Indiana and Illinois. But a lot is going on in the United States in 1824, but the most um, important piece of, um, I guess you could call it a piece of legislation, but it really is more of, of a doctrine instituted by President Monroe. It was called the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine, uh, to put it in a nutshell, um, basically prohibits European colonization in the Western Hemisphere. You know, we weren't the only nation that had been uh, colonized, or let alone that was uh, being run by um, a European country overseas. Of course, you know, English, the English came to the New World in 1607, most notably starting out at Jamestown. But as the 13 colon, as we expanded to 13 colonies, we were uh, pretty much governed by um, a tyrant, not just so much by a tyrant, but an institution known as Parliament and the Crown. Um, I should point out also, too, that um, Haiti is a great example of another uh, Western uh, nation who was uh, governed by a European nation, being none other than France. And, of course, in 1804, uh, the Haitians um, overthrew um, the French and removed them from um, being on their soil. Of course, we uh, went to war with England in the American Revolution and um, were able to successfully remove uh, the British from um, being in our territory, but it just didn't happen overnight. But by being able to defeat the world's best military was an accomplishment unto itself. Of course, it did take, um, after the Battle of Yorktown, uh, two years afterwards, being the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that officially ended the American Revolution. But the bottom line is, is that the United States is not the only uh, country in the Western Hemisphere that has been um, impacted negatively by the presence of a European nation whose authority overextended its boundaries to where to where not only just a group of men banded together but the uh, but all 13 uh, colonies under what was then colonial America came together to band as one to uh, declare their uh, separation from England so basically James Monroe is trying to send a message to European powers that any efforts of uh, trying to colonize in the Western Hemisphere will no longer be tolerated. And so this doctrine of 1824 basically just states that all Western nations are to be free from any form of European colonization. But I should point out, too, that even um, Brazil might be a lone exception at this time because uh, the Portuguese are still in control of Brazil Spain, I believe, still has control of Puerto Rico at this time. So while there still is um, European influence in the Western Hemisphere, basically the, the Monroe Doctrine prohibits any future attempts to, of European colonization in the Western Hemisphere. So now on to that first leadoff bonus question that you all have been waiting for is the following. In 1824... 
What famous Frenchman, being the last surviving major general from the American Revolution, came to visit as First Nations guest of the United States? Okay, Frenchman. I think this should be an easy one, but if the, if there are people out there who don't know, that's fine. So I will um, tell you all the answer. Marquis de Lafayette. Marquis de Lafayette arrived in August of 1824 into New York City as part of a triumphal American tour. I'm sure many of you are wondering, um, isn't Marquis de Lafayette, doesn't he have to be pretty old by now? Well, he's not 90 years old, but he is 67 years old, which in 1824 probably would be considered old age. But his tour of America is going to be one that will last for 13 months. Although he is not in the best of health, he still made the most with his historic visit. And during his 13-month visit, his means of travel came in all forms. We could be leading on to something right here with the travel piece, and I'll get to that here in a moment, because it probably would, it's probably safe to say it would pertain to what, we're, what we've been talking about this whole time with canals. But let's hang on to that thought. How many um, states are in the Union in 1824? You know, for a long time, we just started out with 13 colonies who banded together to declare their separation from England in 1776 to become 13 states. But it's not until after George Washington becomes president that the Union starts to expand in terms of adding states. So, besides the 13 original colonies, the 11, 11 other states... In the post-American Revolutionary War era, most notably uh, beginning with George Washington, 11 more states are added to the Union. Those 11 states are uh, Maine, which for a number of years was considered to be part of Massachusetts up until 1820 with that uh, famous uh, Missouri Compromise, which uh, allowed Maine to be a free state and Missouri became a slave state. And of course, uh, as the 19th century came along, I think it's probably fair to say more so by then that that's where those compromises came into play to have a uh, equal balance in the Union. But uh, besides Maine and Missouri, there was Vermont, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, Indiana. You also have Illinois. Uh, there's Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and uh, Florida. So there you have it, folks. Those are the 11 other uh, states that, are in, that have been admitted into the Union leading up to 1824. And to think the Marquis de Lafayette visited all 24 states. Now that is remarkable. It, it, it truly is. What, what's even more remarkable is that he visited uh, Harvard and Columbia Universities two Ivy League institutions. He dined with three former U.S. presidents who are, I mean, you know, sadly, George Washington's gone at this time, and I think that's unfortunate. I mean, of course, n nobody can live forever. I mean, he lived to be 67, which was old age when he died, but I think it would have been something else had he been alive to have seen the Erie Canal, because after all, from a previous podcast um, early on, in this uh, topic, George Washington was the one that he really was the first American to um, lay the fundamental uh, groundwork behind why canals 
would become a significant uh, asset um, in shaping the future American economy. So the three former presidents that uh, the Marquis de Lafayette dined with were um, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James, Mon and James Madison. Of course, he did dine with James Monroe, and he would also dine with uh, John Adams's son, who would become uh, president after uh, James Monroe left office, being John Quincy Adams. Marquis de Lafayette also visited Boston, where he was transported via carriage as part of a large parade led by American Revolutionary War survivors from the Bunker Hill battle that was the um, battle that was really, it really marked the um, beginning of the end to, um, what do you call it, to uh, British um, toleration in the sense that, hey, um, yes, two months earlier, we fired the first shots heard around the world at Lexington and Concord in April of 1775, but now we're going to uh, take things to a greater uh, level by um, fighting an all-out an all battle that will uh, really um, cement um, where we stand as an army. And if those of you who aren't familiar with Bunker Hill, I would suggest listening to my podcast sessions on um, Founding Martyr, uh, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Forgotten Hero by Christian D. Spigna. Uh, that will tell you a good deal about Bunker Hill and how it truly was probably the bloodiest uh, battle in the American Revolution um, er, in the early uh, years of the war. But uh, there were a handful of survivors who um, who um, were a part of the uh, procession, and matter of fact, they... Um, were led they led the procession um in uh, in leading um Marquis de Lafayette um to the uh, memorial uh, site for Bunker Hill i think it's probably fair to say that many of these men um if you probably are wondering how old some of those survivors had to have been i mean they their age ranges could have varied um from 60 maybe to being in their 80s or 90s but i think it's pretty amazing when you think in 1824 you're on the cusp of celebrating the 50th, um, a, being a year later, 1825, the 50th anniversary of uh, the first shots heard around the world, as well as this battle at Bunker Hill. And to think two years after 1824 come 1826, uh, the United States would be celebrating its um, 50th anniversary of uh, declaring independence from England. So I'm sure many of you, many of you all are wondering, okay, with this... Um, state-of-the-art um, tour that Marquis de Lafayette is getting of the United States, I'm sure you all are wondering, what about the Erie Canal? Is he going to see that? Well, here's my next bonus question for you all. Did the Marquis de Lafayette pay his respects to the Erie Canal? Absolutely yes. He first, first off, he arrives into Buffalo by steamer from Dunkirk, which is a village about 50 miles down the coast of Lake Erie, which was done so on June 6th of 1825. His first glimpse of the Erie Canal was while en route by carriage from Buffalo to Lockport. And of course, we mentioned from the previous podcast about how Lockport was home to the flight of five locks, which were the, um, which were really the, um, the grandest of the locks, given that they were a part of that uh, Niagara escarpment. So, 
While en route by carriage from Buffalo to Lockport, he then went by boat on canal from Lockport, and his journey would take him east into um, cities like Rochester, Syracuse, and Utica. Lafayette traveled on what would be called a packet boat, and I will uh, tell you more about a packet boat um, in the next upcoming podcast uh, session. But what I can tell you this much about a packet boat is that they were boats designed to carry passengers from point A to point B. So I can tell you this much right now that um, that there are no two uh, boats that are alike that will be moving along the Erie Canal, but the packet boats are going to be um, very popular, to say the least, when it comes to um, getting tra- getting uh, passengers who say are, are wanting to visit um, relatives or just what we might think of in today's time as a, a, a day trip, getting them from point A to point B without having to go on that traditional horse and buggy, which could um, could take a lot longer to, in terms of getting from origin to final destination. Now, what's interesting about June 8th of 1825, uh, Marquis de Lafayette arrives into Utica, where he was greeted by Governor DeWitt Clinton, and for the next three days, the two men would go eastward via canal waters onto Albany. So interesting enough that he, on June 6th, he um, departs from Buffalo to Lockport, and then by Lockport, and then from Lockport via boat, he is um, going eastward, and Utica is one of those towns. So, And we have to remember, too, the boats are only going at about four miles an hour, which, you know, it, it is it does seem slow, but we also have to remember that four miles per hour, that, that was the norm back then. There was no such thing as uh, modernized um what do you call it, uh, modernized um, engines that would, uh, say, give better horsepower or let alone uh, faster access to reaching your final destination. But remember, the canal is a huge, giant step for mankind in terms of how we are now moving versus by horse and buggy. But, you know, it is fair to say that horse and buggy is still around, but canals are the most revolutionary form of transportation, whether it's for commercial purposes or for transporting people, it is going to become, in my opinion, a new norm, but a new norm that will benefit everyone for all the right reasons, those who um, are going to depend upon the canal. Now, when in 1825 did the Erie Canal officially become complete to where festivity celebrations started taking place? Uh, the answer is in late October of that year. Late October. So James Monroe has already left office. So it would be fair to say because he has left office and now John Quincy Adams is president, you've got four former presidents who have now who will now uh, be witnessing history actually coming alive. And of course, after John Adams became president, then you had three more Virginians in the White House. So John Adams really is the only, he's the only New Englander out of the first five presidents. And, and of course, now his son follows in his footsteps. Now, uh, from, June, from October 26th to roughly about November 7th of 1825 is the timeline, or should I say time frame period, for which the Erie Canal festivities took place all throughout New York State and New York City. 
this is definitely going to be a period of celebration for all the right reasons. And it really is fair to say that New York, pardon me, deserved to celebrate big time for so many reasons. But if I had to pick one, it would be this. If you, and let's think about it, folks, based off of what I've shared in previous podcast sessions, we all should know that the state of New York um, went alone on this project. I mean, they did, you know, legislators and commissioners did go above and beyond to uh, get the federal government to be involved in this project. But as we all know by now, that really just didn't go anywhere. So we all should know now that the state went alone. And because the state went alone, they didn't, New York didn't require any financial help from the federal government over an eight-year span, being 1817 to 1825, which the canal itself was constructed. I do believe that had the state of New York been given money, who's to say that they might have been able to have paid um, the debts off in a timely manner, especially when you consider that financial panic uh, crisis that occurred in 1819, the state of New York was doing much better off than the rest of the Union. It was one of the few bright spots where jobs were actually being created versus being eliminated. But I think a lot of that has to do with the actual construction of the Erie Canal and that the communities as a whole were involved rather than relying on private companies or corporations to come in and do the job. You know, people in the communities, or let alone the locals, they were the ones that knew how to go about hiring people. They knew how to mobilize, but they also knew their communities so well that they actually um, worked with uh, engineers and surveyors to uh, come together and say, hey, this is how we think uh, the canal would benefit our community, but this is how we, you know, this is how it probably should be constructed um, so that... Um, so that boats won't run into any um, problems, but also um, that people's jobs will benefit the canal. Because there were those who were, who were under the assumption that the canal wouldn't benefit them and that their jobs and, or livelihoods would have been eliminated. But it turns out that there was more job creation in New York during that span from 1817 to 1825, all in the name of the Erie Canal, and what do you know, the state was able to pay its bonds and um, debts at, off with lower interest rates. It, it really is an amazing, it's one thing to construct this canal, but to be able to pay it off in, in a timely manner, that is debts, where you didn't have to rely on the federal government for any money. I think that is a remarkable accomplishment onto itself. There's nothing wrong with relying on money from the government but sometimes if it doesn't get spent wisely, the money gets placed into the wrong hands to where it gets placed in uh, private hands and, and those people don't invest it wisely. Yeah, it, it can cause a lot of um, uproar and, and backfiring. Thank heavens that didn't happen to uh, the people in New York State or let alone um, those who built the canal because if it had happened the opposite way, I don't think you would have had an engineering marvel when it was all said and done with. And all past conflicts amongst political supporters and opponents of the canal came to an end as the celebrations and festivities began in October of 1825. Which city opened the festivities on the morning of October 26th of that, of that year? 
Buffalo. The parade was led by Governor DeWitt Clinton, and what do you know? Governor Clinton is again governor. He uh, served, obviously, multiple terms of, uh, of the governorship in New York State, but hey, why not be governor again? There's nothing wrong with it. So the parade was led by Governor DeWitt Clinton from the courthouse to the waterfront in Buffalo. Now, besides transporting Governor Clinton, what else did the packet boat, which he traveled on, leaving Buffalo, it was known as the Seneca Chief. What else did the, the Seneca Chief transport? I'm sure some of you are thinking, why is that important to know? Well, it will be discussed here again um, in a short while, but it will um, be something historical. But I can tell you this right here. Two wooden kegs decorated with eagles. It wasn't just so much they were decorated with eagles. They were filled with water from Lake Erie. Well, remember, folks, early on, and we've learned this, that the, lake, that the Erie Canal is connecting the waters from, from the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean, Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes, vice versa. So, maybe it's maybe this water that was collected from Lake Erie could be going somewhere eastward to make a statement in terms of how waters or uh, bodies of waters are being united for the right reasons. All right, another bonus question right here. Where was the packet boat Seneca Chief making its final destination given there were two kegs filled with water from Lake Erie? Okay, it's probably a good thing we're, we're staying on this uh, topic right here. These uh, kegs filled with water from Lake Erie were, um, were going to New York City. Given that waters from the Great Lakes were now officially connected and linked to the Atlantic Ocean via inland navigational waterway. So if the Great Lakes, most notably Lake Erie, is not connected with, going to be connected with the Atlantic Ocean via waterway, then what's the point in even sending this water? But this wa sending this water is going to send a statement. And we'll find out here more about that uh, momentarily. But the festivities in Buffalo included a key notable figure. We haven't really mentioned him, and I do apologize for that, but I think right now it would be important to do just that. His name is uh, Jesse Hawley. He was the first proponent behind getting a canal put into play in New York State 20 years earlier. He knew from the get-go just how advantageous inland navigation by, by canal could become for various reasons. I mean, there were many other uh, people as well, but I think Jesse Hawley had been forgotten for quite a while. Um, so it was. I think it's great to know that he uh, came out and spoke in Buffalo about the importance of what had been achieved, and that he and that his voice had not been forgotten from years earlier. Now it's easy to assume that it's just the big cities like Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse and Albany that are going to be doing all this celebration. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Did the smaller villages come out and celebrate canal festivities? Absolutely. And a good example of a smaller village, it's probably got maybe between 1,000, 1,500 people living, uh, residents living in the uh, village. It's outside of Syracuse, known as Port Byron. 
The community greeted Governor Clinton and other noteworthy people with fireworks display to musket volleys as well as a fancy dining banquet affair. So even for a small town, it's fair to say that there are enough people out there who care enough, not only about their town, but care enough about what has been uh, constructed and just how significant um, the canal, the Erie Canal, will be not only for New York State, but for um, for commercial purposes and uh, transporting people to new uh, destinations, most notably um, settlements that will open up in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. Because, um, think about it, without tr being able to transport the goods and people, then how can you um, have any kind of long-term success with uh, canal canals in general? I should point out that Port Byron is home to some famous residents. Henry Wells, who founded American Express. You know, the credit card, American Express, don't leave home without it. To uh, Mormon leader Brigham Young, who founded um, BYU or Brigham Young uh, University out in uh, Provo, Utah. To Isaac Singer, who invented the sewing machine. There is a castle in New York State in the Thousand Islands region that my wife and I saw and got to tour um, this past summer called Singer Castle. And it was um, purchased, uh, It was per the property was purchased by a fellow named Commodore Frederick Gilbert Bourne, who um, was from Long Island, but he would become the fifth president of the Singer Sewing Machine Company. And we really have uh, Commodore Frederick Gilbert Bourne to thank for putting Singer Sewing Machine on the national map. For the longest time, um, the only people that could really afford a sewing machine were those um, in the higher ranks of society. But um, Commodore Bourne decided to um, give all families, even from, from the lower ranks of society, he let them rent a sewing machine for a dollar a day. And it, the practice came, came on so great that um, everybody was wanting one and the prices got lowered to where everybody could afford a Singer sewing machine. So the bottom line is, if it weren't for Commodore Bourne, um, I don't know how well uh, people's accesses to sewing machines um, would have been um, a reality. Um, but if you ha haven't been to the Thousand Islands before, I strongly recommend it. And visiting uh, Singer Castle, uh, my wife and I certainly saw our fair share of Singer sewing machines. Uh, but we do have um, Commodore Bourne to thank for that. So you never know sometimes in smaller villages where uh, some of the most uh, noteworthy people um, will make a uh, mark in terms of their uh, legacy. Now on um, November 2nd of 1825, DeWitt Clinton and his guests arrive into Albany and pass through the last lock of uh, the Erie Canal before entering the Hudson River. Guests from the federal government attending the festivities range from Secretary of State Henry Clay to U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall. Now, um, another bonus question for you all is this. What was important about November 4th of 1825? Governor Clinton 
along with everyone else aboard the boats, were due to arrive into New York City for the final commencement of canal festivities. All boats involved in the festivities had themes for honoring canal achievements. Here's a good example right here. Uh, there was a boat called the Washington. It consisted of decorations ranging from flaming torches to prominent figures whom had sculptures produced of them being George Washington to Marquis de Lafayette, all the way down to uh, sculptures promoting agriculture, commerce, to a whole earth globe. Now, I tell you, that really would have been uh, something to have seen at this day and time. It almost reminds me of like a Tournament of Roses parade that... Um, they that they do each uh, New Year's Day. Of course, I don't think they did it this year with all that's uh, been going on in the world, uh, most notably with the coronavirus. But uh, the Tournament of Roses uh, parade had um, all kinds has all kinds of unique floats, and based off of what I just described a moment ago, it kind of reminds me in some ways of what would have been the equivalent of a Tournament of Roses parade for the 19th century. I should also point out with the Marquis de Lafayette that, um, yes, he did dine with uh, three former presidents, Thomas Jefferson being one of them, but I do know that he visited Monticello in 1824, and that would also have been the last time that he ever saw Thomas Jefferson alive. Um, that visit to Monticello was a very uh, historic uh, visit. Um, Jefferson loved Lafayette. And I know Lafayette loved him in return. Uh, Lafayette was very um, well regarded by all of the Americans, especially years after the American Revolution. Many of them came to realize just how vital of a role he played. And Lafayette himself didn't have a father of his own. He lost his father when he was very young. And it makes all the more sense why he saw George Washington as a, as a second father, but more so as a father figure he never had. And I also should point out, too, that there are many uh, cities and towns in the United States where um, where um, their cities or towns' names are Lafayette in honor of the Marquis de Lafayette, most notably like Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, Lafayette, Indiana, uh, just to name a few places. Now, uh, would the steamboat... Uh, Washington become the lead ship entering uh, the southern end of the New York Harbor? Yes. It was on the Washington where Governor Clinton and Lieutenant Governor Talmadge, along with countless other dignitaries, would enter upon to where all other boats and ships went about forming a circle around her. Now, the first ceremonial act involved Governor Clinton filling multiple bottles and these bottles, I kid you not, were um, had scripted on them, made in America. And water from Lake Erie was placed in these bottles. What was the significance behind this? Well, the water bottles were placed in a cedar box to be transported back to France as a gift to Marquis de Lafayette from the people of New York. In other words, Lafayette... Um, saw for himself, would be able to see for himself physical proof that you take the water from Lake Erie, which is in the bottles, and here you are trans here you are b 
going from point A to point B from the Atlantic Ocean, from, the, from France to the United States, and the United States to France, but also knowing that you have water from Lake Erie that connects into the Atlantic Ocean uh, via the Hudson River. So it's fair to say that Lafayette will know that he received a gift, a gift that we can, that we can proudly say was a wedding of the waters gift. The ceremony itself would also go on to include Governor Clinton's pouring Lake Erie's waters from kegs having left Buffalo into the Atlantic Ocean. So there you have it, folks. He, he has uh, shown right away now that the wedding of the waters has been fully complete. 363 miles, folks, Erie Canal going from Albany to Buffalo. But the Atlantic Ocean and the Hudson River feed into Lake Erie. Lake Erie feeds into um, the Mohawk River Valley, Hudson, down to the Atlantic Ocean. It's a perfect marriage of transportation at its true zenith. Who is Dr. Samuel Mitchell? Now, we haven't talked about him um, until now, but he has not been mentioned up, up until this point. But, but he is a key figure. He is a close friend of Governor DeWitt Clinton's. He had 13 bottles of water. Why 13? Well, when I think of 13, I think it's fair to say that means, um, you know, a dozen is 12, a baker's dozen is 13, but he has 13 bottles of water from different nations around the world. And he went about emptying them all into the Atlantic Ocean. It wasn't that he was just emptying 13 bottles of water from around the world, but some of these other bodies of water from around the world had connected with other bodies of water. In the same way that the Atlantic Ocean has connected with the Erie Canal, Erie Canal with the Atlantic Ocean, vice versa. On the evening of November 4th, on the evening of November 4th of 1825, it was a majestical evening. How so? Public buildings to hotels in New York City were covered with lights. The City Hotel had the brightest of them all. And what's ironic about the City Hotel, folks, is that's where 10 years earlier in 1815, a mass meeting took place for public support behind constructing the Erie Canal. And Governor DeWitt Clinton, he was governor at the time, folks, and he was at that meeting. The commissioners, along with Governor Clinton at that time, decided to take a different approach. Instead of, um, that, yes, they had gone before the legislature. They had also surveyed. They had done every other thing possible. If there was one thing they were missing out on, and they caught on to it very quickly, was having multiple town hall meetings with the public over the Erie Canal. And all of these town hall meetings in the end paid off. Well, at the, on one hand, yes, they probably would have heard from those who were skeptical about this, who just simply opposed it. But they met enough people, that is enough common everyday people, who wanted to go along in support of the project. Well, it's fair to say this. Without this meeting, most notably this meeting that was the groundbreaking one for uh, where Mass, the mass public's involvement started to take place in terms of laying the foundation. Had that meeting not taken place, there might not be an Erie Canal constructed. 
So sometimes you have to go beyond what you were normally accustomed to doing to really be able to win the people's hearts. And that doesn't always mean winning the legislature's hearts. It might mean winning some of those people's hearts, but if you really want to win the true hearts of those who are going to go along, then it's going to have to be the greater public at large, in this case, the people of New York State. Our last bonus question for uh, to, for this uh, session uh, or discussion is the following. What do the citizens of Buffalo do in return, similar to what was done on the canal's eastern end? Well, on uh, November 23rd of 1825, the, the boat Seneca Chief returned westward with a keg of Atlantic Ocean waters. Judge Samuel Wilkeson. He emptied the keg of Atlantic waters into Lake Erie. He was given the honor in, in, to do this in part because he fiercely lobbied for Buffalo to become Erie Canal's western terminus. So Governor DeWitt Clinton takes, the keg, takes kegs of water that were transported from Buffalo and dumps those Erie Canal, the water from the Erie Canal into the Atlantic Ocean. And Samuel Wilkeson has a keg of Atlantic Ocean water and dumps that into Lake Erie. There again, folks, it is a pure symbolic gesture. Not just a gesture, but a pure symbolic sign of just how pertinent and how significant this construction, or not just construction, but this engineering marvel had, not just on the people of New York State, but on the, but for, um, I guess you could say for a, a part of the nation, but also for how goods are going to truly get around, not just from one spot, being just New York City, but how they will be able to move further inland up into New York State and all the way past Buffalo, uh, in terms of reaching new markets that go past Buffalo, New York, like Ohio and Indiana and, and Illinois, not just for goods purposes, but, you know, getting people transported. And the Erie Canal's completion did enable New York State's interior to be linked to the seas of the Atlantic Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean to New York State, vice versa. It would revolutionize how commerce and goods, including immigrants, arrived into America that had not been seen before. I'm sure many of you all are wondering, with the way this presentation went, it sounds like we're actually at the end of it. But as I said earlier, we've got one more part to discuss. And to me, this part's just as important as um, the um, dedication of the actual Erie Canal itself that happened um, with the actual wedding of the water ceremonies, given that we had water poured into the Atlantic Ocean from the Erie Canal, and then we had water poured from the Atlantic Ocean into the Erie Canal, vice versa. What we're going to be discussing in the final part, beginning uh, with the future podcast uh, episode session, will be after the wedding. I'm sure right away many of you are thinking, okay, after the wedding, is this going to be... Um, what uh, what long-term success uh, there will be transportation-wise for the canal. Absolutely. We're going to learn how many boats are operating on the canal um, in the years after um, the initial inauguration of the Wedding of the Waters took place. We're going to learn about um, the different types of boats. We're going to learn just how much... Um, we're going to learn just how much has is going to has and will be um, 
will change all for the better. Well, uh, thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. And um, part five is actually titled, yes, as I said, is After the Wedding. So um, continue to fasten on to your seatbelts for um, new and exciting information as we venture into the final chapter or the final part of Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation. Take care and stay safe.